Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where we bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific region. I don't think there's going to be a large number of very splashy announcements. President Biden has already announced a pledge of 100 million new spending on U.S. ASEAN initiatives. And I don't expect a lot of other big announcements around there. I think the most important thing is that the meeting happens and that these leaders get a lot of face time with President Biden. And the other important thing to note is that, you know, President Biden and his team began to roll out an Indo-Pacific strategy. They released a document back in February. And, you know, I expect that the plan was that that would be followed by a speech that would outline a China strategy and that there would be attempts to really define the challenges that the administration sees related to China and other issues in the region and really start a big diplomatic push to show a real commitment for the United States to do sort of a strategic tilt towards the Indo-Pacific. One thing that is clear if one reads this, the document that was put out, that puts out the blueprint for the Indo-Pacific strategy, is that this administration clearly sees ASEAN and Southeast Asia at the heart of its strategy. And so it is very important symbolically and in terms of President Biden showing his personal commitment to these countries to begin to create those building blocks for this broader strategy. I'm Rexon Yu, Managing Partner at the Asia Group. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Amy Seawright, one of the leading U.S. experts on Southeast Asia and on the Indo-Pacific more broadly. Amy is a senior associate for Asia at CSIS and previously directed the center's Southeast Asia program. Amy also served with distinction in several different positions in the U.S. government, most recently as Deputy Assistant Secretary for South and Southeast Asia from 2014 to 2016, position where I had a chance to work directly with her when I was at the Pentagon myself. And before that, she was the Principal Director for East Asia in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and as a Senior Policy Advisor for Asia at USAID, the Agency for International Development. She began her career in government in 2003, serving on the State Department's policy planning staff and as a senior advisor to the U.S. ambassador to APEC. Amy, that's a long list of distinguished positions. Thank you so much for joining us again, as we were just talking about on the Tea Leaves podcast. It's a pleasure to have you back. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here and see you again, Rexon. And as you said, the last time I did this podcast, it was in the office right before the COVID pandemic. So a lot in the world has changed since then. Yeah, a few developments since uh, the end of 2019. <laughs> we'll dig into some of them. Maybe let's start, Amy, with a current event that will occur later this month. The upcoming summit President Biden will host with the leaders from the ASEAN countries. And for our listeners, ASEAN stands for Association of Southeast Asian Nations, a grouping of 10 countries from that part of the world. There have been some delays, seemingly one postponement of the summit, but the leaders will visit Washington for a special summit on May 12th and 13th. Let's start, Amy, with just some of the basics. Who do you think will attend? Anything we should read into who's there and who's not? And maybe your top-level expectations for the meeting. Sure. So this is exciting. It, as you mentioned, it's it's sort of a long time coming. The last time 
that the United States hosted the 10 ASEAN leaders was when uh, President Obama held the first U.S. ASEAN summit in the United States at Sunnylands, California. And that was all the way back in February 2016. There's actually been two attempts to have a second summit. The Trump administration had planned for a summit in, I believe, March of 2020, right as the COVID pandemic was really taking off. And so they ended up canceling that summit because of all the travel of leaders and large delegations that that would entail. So that was postponed. And then, as you say, uh, the Biden team tried to get a summit together in March of this year, but scheduling many leaders is always difficult. And Cambodia quickly announced, after the White House had announced uh, that it was going to happen, Cambodia, who was serving as the chair of ASEAN this year, told the press that it was going to be postponed. So they came up with dates that now work in May. ASEAN has 10 member countries, and I expect eight of the 10 will come. The two that are not planning to attend are President Duterte of the Philippines, who is about to, you know, there's an election, an upcoming election in the Philippines, which perhaps we'll talk about right a couple of days before. So, you know, he will still be president, but there's a lot going on in the Philippines. And frankly, he really does not like to travel and he has very um, difficult relations in some ways with the United States. So it's not a huge surprise that he's not planning to come. And then the other absentee will be Myanmar, General Minang Lai, who, of course, led the coup in February of uh, 2021 against Aung San Suu Kyi and, and her government. And ASEAN has been isolating him by not inviting him to some leader level meetings. And certainly the United States would not welcome his participation or a member of his government. So Myanmar will be, the Myanmar government will not be represented at the most senior level. Uh, in terms of the big expectations, I don't think there's going to be a huge amount of what we used to call in government deliverables right. or outcomes. Or outcomes. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, there's going to be more, more of a release of details about the Indo-Pacific economic framework, which we can talk about. But other than that, I don't think there's going to be a large number of very splashy announcements. President Biden has already announced a pledge of 100 million new spending on U.S. ASEAN initiatives. And I don't expect a lot of other big announcement around there. I think there'll be um, some talk about uh, Ukraine and Russia, but ASEAN is very divided on that issue. So I don't expect a lot of unity or solidarity around that issue either. So I think the most important thing is that the meeting happens and that these leaders get a lot of face time with President Biden. And the other important thing to note is that, you know, President Biden and his team began to roll out an Indo-Pacific strategy. They released a document back in February. And, you know, I w expect that the plan was that that would be followed by a speech that would outline a China strategy and that there would be attempts to really define the challenges that the administration sees related to China and other issues in the region and really start a big diplomatic push to show a real commitment for the United States to do sort of a strategic tilt towards the Indo-Pacific. But of course, Russia invaded Ukraine just a couple of weeks later. And so I think in some ways, the Indo-Pacific framework and shaping that up is, was put on the back burner. So this summit comes at a very opportune time for the administration to pivot back to really trying to focus on the region. And it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of activity that's going to be followed by President Biden's trip 
to South Korea and Japan. In Japan, he'll meet with the other leaders of the Quad, uh, which is another opportunity, obviously, to really define the challenges and, and talk about collective efforts to build a free and open Indo-Pacific. And we expect that Secretary of State Blinken is going to give a speech outlining some of the China strategy that's been worked out in the days prior to the summit, in the coming days. So this is kind of a a bit of a diplomatic surge, if you will, around the broader regional issues. One thing that is clear, if one reads the document that was put out, that puts out the blueprint for the Indo-Pacific strategy, is that this administration clearly sees ASEAN and Southeast Asia at the heart of its strategy. And so it is very important symbolically and in terms of President Biden showing his personal commitment to these countries to begin to create those building blocks for this broader strategy. Yeah. Let me ask on the point you just made, ASEAN, Southeast Asia at the heart of the strategy. And I think it's worth sort of spending a moment to unpack this because I absolutely agree. When you look at the theater of competition, if you will, regionally, you know, it's not Northeast Asia where our two you know, very close allies, South Korea and Japan are. We have a very close partnership with Taiwan. But if you look at Southeast Asia, it's a much more diverse picture, as you noted, in many different ways. You have two allies of the United States, but also countries that are seen as very, very close to China. You have you know, small countries, large countries, and you know countries of a wide variety of makeup uh, religious and ethnic it's just it's diverse on almost every dimension so you know in my view i think it goes to your point you know we don't have huge expectations for what we can accomplish with a diverse grouping like this but talk a little bit more about this diversity and how you reflect on you know, where we are today perhaps versus you know when you were in government what are the trend lines how do you see the countries in this region breaking out into you know, where they are on the spectrum? Well, you're right to point to the diversity on every dimension, economic, political, regime type, religion, culture. And yet they have clung together as a grouping for many, many decades. And that recognition of their effort to really band together as ASEAN and be the center of the regional architecture, lead regional discussions on key issues, is very, very important to these countries collectively and in most cases individually. So it's the reason why, despite the difficulty of corralling these very disparate countries and trying to forge a consensus on a whole range of issues, Several administrations now have come to realize the importance of acknowledging ASEAN centrality and taking efforts to build good relations with the grouping as a group, as well as bilateral ties with with individual countries and some of the bigger countries in particular. So ASEAN has faced a lot of challenges in recent years. Many would argue that it has been weakened by growing diversity among the views of its members. It has been pulled apart to some degree because of the rising tension between the United States and China. And I wouldn't just put that in bilateral terms. I mean, it's really about Chinese behavior in the region and the reaction by not just the United States, but many other countries in the region, Japan, Australia, India, 
you know, many countries have have formed a coalition. Um, hence, we see the Quad countries coming together to try to find ways to cooperate and build regional norms and and rules in a way that will more effectively bind China. And so ASEAN, some members um, like that and want to be helpful and supportive in 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 finding ways to curb Chinese uh, problematic behavior, especially in the South China Sea, but in other areas as well, in the Mekong region and other places. Whereas other countries are really much more pulled gravitationally towards China and their economic power and some of the diplomatic goodies that China offers them. So Cambodia, for example, is famously, you know, in terms of Cambodian leadership, not necessarily the people, but the leadership has been very close to China and has in many ways been deferential to China and China's preferences. And so the last time that Cambodia chaired ASEAN in 2012, I believe, it was the first time ever that ASEAN was not able to come up with a joint declaration at the end of their summit because there was so much, you know, Cambodia was not willing to forge a consensus around issues such as the South China Sea. So that creates some concern that Cambodia is again sharing this year. But to go back to the broader point, ASEAN is a collection of of many different countries with many different preferences. They've been somewhat pulled apart by this regional rivalry. And so consensus has become more and more difficult for them to forge and we see the lack of unity in many other issues as well, including Myanmar, for example, the reaction to the February 2021 coup. Some countries like Malaysia and Indonesia want to be very forward-leaning and really push Myanmar to pull back from its oppression and release Aung San Suu Kyi and other political opponents that have been imprisoned and restore civil liberties and democratic processes, whereas other countries seem much more content to just sort of let the situation play out and give normative support for democracy, but not really do much about it. So for the United States, you know, the United States has to have sensible expectations about what it can accomplish with this grouping in terms of really shaping a clear geostrategic position of the group. But engagement in and of itself is very valuable and helps to build bilateral ties, even when there's an attempt to engage the group. And many would argue that even a weakened ASEAN in its current state is still better than a world where ASEAN doesn't exist or ASEAN really falls apart. ASEAN still, just at the base level of being able to convene the region, create dialogue around a set of norms and principles that it has long stood for, is a better alternative in terms of creating some ballast against a rising more assertive China than not having that structure at all. Amy, let me ask you, as you, you know, talk to officials and individuals from countries in this region, and you, you know, you made an interesting comment that, you know, part of that growing divergence within ASEAN is the reaction to Chinese behavior and Chinese moves, you know, for example, growing military presence in the South China Sea, some of the other types of economic coercion China has pursued. Basic question I have is, if you were to say, you know, which way is the directional arrow pointing when it comes to most countries on the question of U.S. and China? Is there more of an opportunity for the United States today? Less? You know, how do you how do you diagnose the trend line? That's a very good question. So in many ways, China has been our best friend in terms of helping to shape some of the preferences of countries that we want to be a little more active and engaged 
in the region. In other words, China's assertiveness and its somewhat bullying behavior has pushed some countries in the region to be more open to cooperation with the United States. Or give, give me an example. So one example going back a decade is Vietnam, as Vietnam has faced, you know, Vietnam has very close political and economic ties to China. And yet, as it has faced more and more conflict and tension over competing claims in the South China Sea, you know, Vietnam has turned to more of a strategic relationship with the United States and other countries, um, Japan and India and other countries as well, and has really become a voice within ASEAN for more action as a grouping to try to hold China to standards that ASEAN itself has long um, stood for, non-coercion, peaceful resolution of disputes, adherence to international law and UNCLOS and these other things. The other concerning trend, however, in the region is that in a number of countries, we have seen backsliding on democracy and human rights. We've seen a coup in, in Thailand in 2014, where Thailand is back to elections, but it's very much manipulated by the military-backed parties. And so it's really not back to a true democracy. You know, under President Duterte over the past six years in the Philippines with his war on drugs and crackdown on journalists and a whole host of other things, we've seen a real deterioration in human rights and civil liberties and some democratic practices a number of countries, you know, Cambodia has, has long been extremely problematic in terms of the direction it's moving, you know, very sharply away from democracy. Other countries in the region like Vietnam and Laos have long been, you know, communist autocratic systems. And Indonesia is the one example we have of, of a clear, full-blown secular democracy, which is quite a remarkable achievement for Indonesia, although even there, there are challenges. So, these countries have different regime types. They have different reactions to, you know, the Biden administration's approach to talking about democracy and human rights and framing things like dealing with authoritarian systems like China and Russia as a challenge that must be met by democracies coming together and working together. That kind of framework does not work well for Southeast Asia, where many of our closest friends, I've already mentioned the Philippines and Thailand, our two treaty allies, are facing problems on that front. But Singapore, one of our really strongest strategic allies in terms of the access it provides our military forces and the way that we see eye to eye on many, many strategic issues. Singapore is also not a full-fledged democracy. It was not invited to the Global Summit on Democracies that President Biden hosted virtually this past December. So it is a real challenge to think of how to work with this region with so much divergence on the democratic front and human rights front and their views towards China. But there is, if you look at public opinion polls over the past several years, you will see that although the countries in the region and the governments, the leaders and the strategic elites very much view China as the reality that China is the largest, most powerful country in the region economically and politically. The United States used to hold that ranking in the view of these elites and leaders, but it has fallen behind China pretty much across the board. But when questions are asked about favorability, you know, how do you trust China to do the right thing? Is China likely to grow, you know, more assertive or be a benevolent force in the region? Um, there you see the public opinion polls and the survey of elites very much swing towards a negative view of China and China's behavior and China's intentions. And the view of the United States has actually bounced 
back up quite high after President Biden's election. I think there's a lot of expectation that the United States will return to multilateral diplomacy and a climate change agenda and other things that are very important to the region. And there's a lot of expectations around real engagement with the region as well. So trends are mixed, not entirely favorable, but there are some there are some promising things that we can build on that really grow out of concern about Chinese behavior in the region. And that's exactly how the Biden administration has tried to frame the Indo-Pacific framework around concerns relating to Chinese behavior and the impact of that behavior on public goods and other collective goals. And, you know, within this regional Indo-Pacific strategy, you mentioned the economic aspect of it, right? And, you know, there's been a fair amount of discussion among the foreign policy worlds here that we, the United States, has not had an economic strategy for the broader Asia region since President Trump, one of his early actions in 2017, decided to pull out from the proposed Trans-Pacific Partnership, the sort of multi-country trade deal. And there really hasn't been really any initiative until a few months ago, the Biden administration rolled out, you mentioned the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which is a far more limited approach, uh, really doesn't have a trade dimension to it. You know, it's more focused on non-trade aspects of commercial relations, renewable energy, tax and corruption policy, supply chain resiliency, and a few others. Has this resonated, in your view, Amy, with countries in Southeast Asia? And, you know, within the region, who's most likely to pick this up with the United States and jump in? That's a good question. So I think that it's hard to overstate what a blow it was to the region and certainly particular countries in the region when the United States walked away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That was seen as the real U.S. commitment to remain economically engaged in the region, not only by creating trade agreements that might increase transborder trade, but by, you know, what the United States is known for is being very good at helping to create rules of the road, especially in trade, that will be beneficial for all and enforceable and therefore really meaningful. I mean, that's what the United States really brings to the table. It creates rules that then it is willing to really try to enforce. There are a lot of trade agreements in the world. Many of them are much less impactful because there's no real means or effort to enforce the rules. So they're sort of more symbolic or aspirational than real commitments. And the region is moving on without the United States. I mean, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is in force under now the CPTPP. And the region has recently, you know, enacted the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which includes all ASEAN countries and China and the other major players in the region, Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand. The only country that didn't come on board is India. But that's a huge number of countries with a very large swath of the economic globe that are now committed to common rules of origin and common rules in a whole host of other areas. And those trade officials are getting together on a regular basis and talking about how to harmonize or you know, how to coordinate a whole bunch of regulatory policies and rules governing trade and services and other things. And, you know, the United States is not there in those discussions, which I think is a huge blow to the perception that the United States really wants to be economically engaged in the region and lead the region. 
And I think it's a huge blow in many ways to our businesses and economic opportunities as well and our farmers and other things. But because of the domestic politics here, you know, it's unlikely that we're going to get back to those kinds of trade agreements soon. Certainly Trump walked away and President Biden has made clear he's not looking to go back into the TPP or other similar trade agreements. So we're left with the IPEF, which is the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which, as you say, talks about a number of areas where they're looking for closer cooperation with countries and, and discussions around how to facilitate trade and um, increase resilience of supply chains. And But it's not clear what is really on offer. I think the, the details are still vague and maybe we will have more clarity after the summit if more clarity is brought to this. But it looks like it's an effort for the United States to offer to sit down and talk about working together and cooperation in certain areas. But it's really not clear to me anyway what the countries are going to get in response. In a trade agreement, it's very clear. I get access to your market and then you get access to my market. It's a very clear quid pro quo. It's very clear what you're negotiating over. But when you talk just about, well, let's sit down and cooperate and talk about how we can improve supply chain resilience and trade facilitation, um, you know, maybe that will bring some helpful investments and some interesting and meaningful initiatives, but it's it doesn't pack the same punch as countries, especially large countries like China or Japan, you know, that offer to open their markets to goods and sometimes investment or people or things like that to other countries. And so, you know, many are people are waiting, if not a real full-blown TPP style trade agreement, why not talk about negotiating a digital trade agreement or something else that has a little more clear value for all the countries involved and that some country would be very eager to sign up with if the United States were sort of leading the discussions at the table. But that doesn't seem to be in the offing. And I frankly don't quite understand why the Biden team isn't trying a little harder to come up with something that would be more appealing to countries in the region. Because as you say, it's a huge gap in, in any strategy we're going to roll out. When the region is so focused on economic engagement and China is offering a lot as are other countries in the region, and the United States is just not part of that discussion. It's very hard to be, you know, competing with China when we're not using our most valuable tool. No, I share your concern and frustration, Amy. And, you know, from the foreign policy perspective, we obviously need more. I think it's safe to say that it certainly seems to have been a, a fraught debate, probably heated at times within the administration to even produce you know, the framework that they have started with. My my sneaking suspicion, if you will, is that the debate and the contours of the debate and the left and right parameters change over time as you have to react and adapt to what other countries put on the table. And that's probably for the good, in my view. And we'll have to see over time here. But Amy, in the time remaining, you mentioned the elections in the Philippines. And I just want to touch on that. I think it's probably safe to say also that over the recent past, no other relationship in Southeast Asia has seen more turbulence than perhaps the US-Philippines relationship with President Duterte leading the Philippines. You know, as you mentioned, a treaty ally of ours, but we've seen you know, moments where there have been real downturn, you know, questions around renewal of some basic founding agreements between us, but have, you know, we've largely salvaged. And I think there's some modest hope that with the election, we might 
at least find a, a higher level of stability going forward. But do you share that sort of cautious or modest optimism, or would you use different adjectives on how you think about the potential outcomes of the election and what it means for this you know, alliance, which is sort of central to Southeast Asia, particularly just basic geography. You look where the Philippines is located. Right. Yeah. I think I'm, I guess, very mildly optimistic is the best way to put it, but I don't have a huge amount of hope for a real reversal of where we are with the Philippines. Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr., the son of Ferdinand Marcos and Imelda Marcos, he's been a politician for quite some time, but he is a clear front runner. And so it looks very likely at this point that he's going to win. And he is not as bombastic as President Duterte has been in terms of, you know, Duterte was not only very accommodating to China in many ways, you know, he made it clear that he wanted to step back from disputes with China over the South China Sea and the court ruling in The Hague and the arbitral tribunal that the Philippines had just won before he was elected. He really wanted to step away from that and try to work out differences with China in a less confrontational way, which is, you know, problematic. That's the first thing. The second thing is he he had a very troubled history with the United States. He just really dislikes the United States for many reasons going way back into his biography. And he was very clear from the start that he wanted a separation, as he called it, from the United States. And several times threatened to withdraw, abrogate the Visiting Forces Agreement, which is the cornerstone of our ability to do all the military cooperation that we do with the Philippines, refused to move forward on EDCA, the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, which we had negotiated in the Obama years, um, which would allow, would have allowed kind of locations to be agreed upon and have rotational forces and all kinds of mill-to-mill cooperation that would be very helpful in terms of creating more deterrence against Chinese aggressiveness against Philippine maritime claims and other things in the region. So Duterte, those are two things. So there's China, his views about China's views about the United States, and then his views about human rights and civil liberties, which were very problematic and pushed the Philippines, you know, in this unfortunately less democratic way. So for all three of those reasons, I think it really damaged our bilateral relationship. And and it also damaged the Philippines used to be the country that was the most reliable country within ASEAN that would stand up for human rights and democracy. And the Philippines under Duterte pulled way back from that position and was, you know, very quiet. For example, in the war in Ukraine, the Philippines is very silent on Russia's invasion and the coup in Myanmar and other things that in previous administrations, post-Marcos, would have been very strong, strongly the voice of the importance of democracy within ASEAN. So I think we'll have a change away from Duterte. And on all three of those fronts, we may see some modest improvements, but I don't think we'll see anything overly dramatic. Marcos Jr. has indicated that he will be relatively accommodating with China. You know, he wants to have a constructive relationship with China. It is possible that under Marcos, we will be able to do, to have better bilateral ties and perhaps get back to a healthier mill to mill cooperation. It never disappeared under Duterte. It was always there, but you know, perhaps we can build that back up. But I, and perhaps you know, perhaps we can strengthen the foundations of our alliance in terms of having more solid consensus around the VFA and perhaps move forward gradually with under EDCA. But 
I think it, it's too soon to tell. We'll have to see if he's elected, how he defines his priorities, who he puts into key positions, and what kind of issues he wants to really lead on versus take advice from some professional civil servants around him. Yeah, we'll see. Time will tell. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Terrific to have a conversation and a primer, particularly on Southeast Asia, just on the eve of the summit, uh, which will occur later this month. I want to say it's probably one of, if not the largest gatherings at the White House in the pandemic world that we live in that we will have seen in the Biden administration. So interesting to watch an eclectic group of leaders get together with the president for this a delicate dance in some ways, given the sensitivity of some topics. And it's great to get your insights in advance. And we will look forward to having you back on the show in the future. Great. Well, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about this. It will be interesting. Look forward to watching what happens. And thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also access the full video of our conversation on the Asia Group's YouTube channel. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.